North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached, and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest. Hey, this is Dr. Kuntz. I am recording solo today. It's the summer, and uh, it's sometimes difficult uh, for everyone to be uh, on the same page at the same time, Uh, especially I'm making that difficult for Pastor Fisk by being practically nomadic, um, driving around the country, in a modern Conestoga wagon. So you can look up Conestoga wagon or Ford Transit, but the effect is the same. So uh, I'm recording today on my own, answering some of your questions from the education series that we've been doing for the last several weeks. And I have gotten so many wonderful questions, both in the Discord and also uh, in real life uh, from listeners uh, asking for expansion or clarification about a lot of the things that we mentioned over that series. So if you are somewhere in the catalog right now and haven't yet listened to the series, you might want to listen to this right now, or you might want to just pause me and then go back and listen to those episodes, listen to the discussions of public school and and private school, homeschool and higher education. And then you'll understand why people are asking the questions that they are now. This is going to be a really good way to pivot to a longer series that we'll be working on in the next several months, really. Uh, And as I record this, uh, we are a day after uh, the Taliban has occupied, after 20 years out of power, uh, Kabul, the capital of Afghanistan. The, The series that we're heading into is looking at what happens after not so much uh, things collapse, uh, maybe on a civilizational scale, as they did in 1200 BC with the Bronze Age collapse, uh, causes for which are debated widely by people. Um, But when certain things collapse, forms of government or forms of entertainment or forms of industry, because um, it is certainly possible that in 10 years, nobody will be able to access uh, any episodes of Brief History of Power uh, because we will be living in you know, Neolithic conditions. It's more likely, I think, that certain things, governmental regimes, uh, forms of power, forms of media, will have been eclipsed or have collapsed or been discredited. And so I want to look at what you might call partial collapses or uh, sectional collapses, rather than saying, well, what happens if we all go uh, somehow into a future Stone Age? That's possible. Um, But as we talked about when we were talking about the end of the Soviet regime, I think we're dealing more likely in the future with forms of regime collapse or replacement than we are with something that would be uh, apocalyptic in the sense that that's used in fiction. So before we go there, and as a way of getting there, um, let's go to some of your questions about education that I've received. I think that uh, whether you've listened to the whole series or not, you'll benefit a lot from these. So I want to start with some of the easier questions (laughs) that'll take a little less time, and then I'll go into some things that are uh, a little more involved in their history. And... uh, this sounds like it's an obscure question, but it's actually kind of an easy question, which is um, we had a listener ask for a little bit more about the history of land-grant institutions. Um, that phrase dates back to the Morrill Act of 1862, Morrill being a last name, not the adjective for something that is you know upright. 
And that act um, tied the uh, the coming of, uh, let's say, what we now call state universities or, or state flagship universities to uh, two things, really, which is why in the history of a lot of these institutions, you'll find one or both. One is the cultivation of agriculture as a science. And that is why institutions like the Pennsylvania State University, um, or uh, let's say, I don't know, the University of Iowa, uh, are going to have and, and continue to have very strong um, agricultural research programs. That's not just because there's so much money um, funded by uh, biotech and uh, genetic modification in modern day America. It's because if you went to one of those universities when they were getting started, so we have a lot of American universities, including one of the Ivies, is in its original land grant institution, and that's Cornell University. Um, a lot of these institutions are founded so that when you go to them, you will actually gain not just a sense of agriculture as a science. So you get disciplines like poultry science that really don't exist as academic disciplines before the 19th century. Those are studied, promoted, and, and you know, uh, propagated uh, from these land-grant institutions. And that's why these institutions will also, uh, whatever the state, generally speaking, uh, they're going to be running the cooperative or extension program for farmers and uh, other folks like beekeepers uh, that's going to be available throughout the state. Um, in Indiana, I believe this is run by Purdue, certainly in my home state of Pennsylvania, it's run by Pennsylvania State University. And it doesn't mean just that these are state or public universities. That wasn't the sole purpose. And there are um, state or public universities that predate um, the land-grant institutions. But it means that those institutions will be specifically uh, set up for the promotion of scientific, that is maximally uh, efficient and well done agriculture. So if you went to one of these institutions, you would, you would be doing hands-on farming as you are also learning in the classroom. Um, that was part of the deal. And there's a prehistory to this um, with uh, institutions that were usually called in the United States mechanics institutes. That's something a little bit different usually in Great Britain. But in the United States, they are institutions of higher learning, or we would now call continuing education. For people that have some sort of practical knowledge or want to gain more practical knowledge, but also want to begin to think about what they do in a coherent way, uniting theory with practice. And some of those institutions will develop into what we would now call institutes of technology, um, as in Georgia Tech or MIT, um, or in the case of Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in New York. Um, they're very high and theoretical science at this point, um, but the, there's a unity between practice and theory that really predates the land-grant institutions. And the land-grants are there to unite theory and practice specifically for agriculture. Another thing they're doing, and maybe you thought of this with the date of 1862, is that they will often also have some kind of military requirement because there will be the student body will be uh, formed as a kind of corps of cadets, and that's for the purposes of the Union uh, in the American Civil War. So um, if I'm not mistaken, I think E.B. White, uh, who wrote Charlotte's Web, goes to Cornell um, but does not receive a degree um, because he uh, flunks out of the required military training course. <laughs> so, uh, you know, he was pretty good at English. Um, but um, And I, I, I might be confusing him with someone else off the top of my head, but there are these instances where at these institutions you're going to have to be proficient not just in agriculture, uh, depending on the program, and by E.B. White's time in the early 20th century, not everyone... Uh, has to be a farmer. But in their origin, everyone uh, has to be somewhat proficient in agriculture and also somewhat proficient at being a soldier. So that's what they're for. And land grant is then going to come to function as a model for um, government funding of educational institutions. So today there are still land grant institutions, but there are also sea grant and space grant institutions. Um, and that also has to do with the um, incredible growth of education we discussed, especially in higher education uh, in the 20th century. 
So land grant will be used as sort of a scaffolding or a template for how the federal government will get involved in funding and therefore getting done what they want done um, in higher education. That, I, I think, is probably the simplest thing we're going into today. Um, <laughs> uh, something that is not simple, but I want to deal with somewhat briefly because it really is worthy of its own episode or episodes, is a question from a listener about the history of Hollywood. I know we talked about that way back, and we talked about it briefly, um, didn't do it justice. What I want to say about that in a nutshell right now, um, rather than do a whole episode today, is that the history of Hollywood, as you dig into it, will be a history of a lot of very interesting people, a lot of very interesting characters. I mentioned the Neil Gabler book, um, An Empire of Their Own how the Jews invented Hollywood, which is sort of like an ethnic history of Hollywood and, and an investigation uh, by a Jewish American of how Jewish Americans fashioned themselves and, and through dominating Hollywood fashioned America sort of in their image. It's a really fascinating book. It's not the only thing to be said about Hollywood. But I would say that maybe comprehensively and related to education, if you start to think about Hollywood as an instance um, of propaganda it all becomes a lot clearer um, what is going on, that um, there, is, there are sheer artistic goals in mind from directors and producers, actors, screenwriters, composers, obviously. Um, in order to do something creative, you have to have somebody who doesn't just want to maintain verbal power over other people. However, it is generally used in its history, and you'll find a cross-pollination, especially in like World War II, between Hollywood and the aims of the American government, or let's say the military industrial complex a little more, um, to put it a little more shadily. And that nexus has remained, right? And so um, in going into the history of Hollywood, um, there are a lot of really fascinating characters uh, to be discussed and stories to be told. But fundamentally, I think of it as a story of how American propaganda works. Um, because with the exception of certain things like the Ad Council, which itself um, is a child of World War II and pretends not to be propaganda, um, Hollywood is a really good example of the way that American power is always projected in a soft way, even when it's ubiquity or it's uh, convincing nature, such as I think film has that particular power we talked about, especially in the episode on David Lynch. American power likes to pretend like it's just natural, but also magical, rather than being overt, like a Soviet propaganda poster. So for me, Hollywood is the history of America's best propaganda machine. And it's one of the few elements of the American regime um, that while it's suffering at the box office and trying to make money off streaming services, which is why you're getting a proliferation of streaming services recently, I really do think, like a lot of other things in our regime, it is uh, suffering mightily and trying to find out how it's going to continue existing. Because in its foundation, Hollywood could rely on a relatively stable, um, marketable, and growing American population, uh, which is partly why you get, for instance, a lot more depth in Hollywood movies from the 1940s or 1950s, because they knew that they were talking largely not exclusively, but largely to Americans. Um, part of the reason that they're doing so many superhero movies is because they can't make money off Americans. So some specific set of cultural references uh, are not going to make sense to the you know global audience they have to have in order to stay afloat. So there's a lot more to be said, but I think that one of the ways that Hollywood ties into discussion of education and also discussion of our regime is that Hollywood is one of the best places to figure out um, how power has been wielded and projected throughout our history. Let's look um, now at some of the things that are going to require a little more time to discuss. Um, and I want to start with maybe the most definite question, because all the questions were honestly fantastic. And um, whether, whether on the Discord or uh, meeting you guys um, in real life, especially throughout this nomadic summer I've been having, um, I am consistently impressed at the the passion and also the knowledge that you guys have. Um, it's really fantastic to see. 
the first of our, let's say, more in-depth questions is about Luther Classical College, which you can find out a lot about um, from their website. Just Google that, Yandex it, whatever search engine you're using. And when you go there, you'll find uh, lots of things, including a timeline uh, that they have, information about how to give, um, which I myself am doing, um, will be doing in the future. Um, I give to in addition to the local congregation, I give to uh, new churches in the United States, and I will be giving to Luther Classical College. So that's where I'm putting my own, uh, the gifts the Lord has given me. Um, and I think you should too. Um, the reason being, if you look at what they're saying, and you look out for the next you know, issue of Christian culture, um, you'll see that they're trying to do something that really is not being done um, hardly at all in American education and uh, has not really been done in the history of Lutheran higher education in the United States, which we didn't talk about specifically. But uh, the closest analog to Luther Classical College historically would be the Wisconsin Synod's Northwestern College, which doesn't really exist anymore, but did seek to inculcate a really thorough classical liberal arts education a lot of those people went on to become pastors in the Wisconsin Synod and, and to some extent the Missouri Synod, um, but was the school was mainly about classical liberal arts, that is, lots of languages, lots of knowledge of Greek and Roman literature and history as foundational for our civilization, lots of knowledge of Lutheran theology. And that, at this point, is not really the purpose of any one given concordia, uh, in the Concordia University system. It is part of what's done there. It's not the sole purpose. So I would say the difference between Luther Classical and other Lutheran colleges, whether in or out of the Missouri Synod, at this point is its focus, which enables it to be small and for a university or a college, really, really cheap um, if you take a look at the information on the website. So I think it has a distinctive purpose. I think it has a distinctive rationale about which a lot more should be coming out, um, I think especially in the magazine. Um, so I am involved. I'm not on, if you go to the website, I'm not on the board of directors or anything. I'm not involved in the planning, which is probably somebody knew I wasn't that great an administrator. So that's good. <laughs> you don't want to entrust me with the counting of beans. But what they're doing, I think, is wonderful, and I, and I fully support it, and I would send my, my own children there. They're not old enough to go to college, but, but when they are, that will be a, a place we'll seriously consider. Um, so I think you'll get more information about it, but um, a lot of it is already on the website. I think the location in Wyoming is a, good, is a really good choice. Um, it is remote, and uh, to me, that's part of the appeal. Um, remote from a lot of the... Uh, mainstreams of modern American life, uh, mainstream being understood usually in modern American life as unhealthy and sickly in many ways. So uh, a degree of remoteness, I think, is a very good thing at this point in our history. Um, so we'll see, we'll see what happens. Um, I'm hoping and praying that it gets off the ground. Um, and uh, anything that you can do to, to support that, I think, would be, would be a wonderful thing. That is about a college. We have uh, more general questions like that about uh, schools, lower levels of schooling, um, not higher education. So um, I received a question from a listener in uh, whom I met about how to start homeschooling, um, which that's what my wife and I do. We homeschool the kids. Um, we've also participated um, in a different state in uh, a classical Christian school. It was not a Lutheran school, so it wasn't, strictly speaking, a parochial school. So let me talk about starting homeschooling, and then uh, we've got a question about what to look for in a parochial school. Um, starting homeschooling, uh, I would say the very basic two things to start are the desire, and then also a certain inner freedom. The desire to homeschool is a desire, as we talked about in the episodes on homeschooling, uh, to take education into your own hands, which you very well can as someone's parent. It doesn't mean that you have to be the instructor in every single subject throughout 
the time of your child's schooling. That's not required by anybody and doesn't need to be. But it does mean that you are taking into uh, your own hands uh, how their education progresses, okay? So that desire to do it really is what is absolutely required for starting. Not required, but helpful for starting are things like a fairly solid curriculum to follow. I find especially that when people get overwhelmed by the stuff they have to do in homeschooling, one of their inclinations is to become extremely loosey-goosey about uh, the content. Uh, So they're homeschooling, but there's not a whole lot specific being conveyed. And I think if you're going to bother to learn to read, write, and do arithmetic, you should do it well, and you should do it with solid material. Um, We use Memoria Press in our homeschool, not slavishly, but um, a majority, a, a sizable majority of what we do is Memoria Press stuff, and we follow their general outline for progression through, you know, subjects of study, astronomy, biology. Um, For math, we use Saxon math rather than Rod and Staff, which is what Memoria recommends. That's our biggest exception. But I think if you're going to bother to do it, you don't need a whole bunch of different stuff. You need the desire to conduct education yourself. And then you need a little bit of very good stuff to work upon, right? Books, um, workbooks, stuff like that. So the principle of much, that is a certain fullness, you know, so my kids are very intimately familiar with Greek myths. They're a lot less familiar with, um, you know, American Indian myths, which is fine. We have like one book about that. We don't study it constructively. That's fine. If they get interested in that later, they can. The important thing is that we've taken the, the de- we have the desire to conduct our children's education ourselves. In addition to that, what I mean by inner freedom is the sense that you, because you are actually the person's father or mother, are qualified, okay? And qualified doesn't have to do with some sort of exterior credentialing process. Qualified has to do with God gave them to you. So whether you homeschool or you send them to any other kind of school, God gave them to you. You are the educator. You are the primary educator, whether you send them to school or not. You are the primary educator, whether you have a bachelor's degree in something or not. You are the primary educator, whether you have a PhD in education of some kind or not. You're the primary educator regardless. So whether you're the instructor in every subject, that's a different thing. But you need an inner freedom from the sense that you are unqualified or uncredentialed. Those processes exist to certify things that don't have to do with asking the question, whom did God put in charge of education? Because a Christian, when he answers that question, is always going to give the answer, the parents. There can be other secondary answers. He could say, well, the parents have you know, handed over some part of that education to um, the parochial school teacher or to the pastor or to the person who's teaching their kids music, even though they're teaching all the other subjects, whatever it is, the primary educator, not the instructor all the time, but the primary educator is always the parents. Everybody's a homeschooler in this sense. And so if you start homeschooling, you're really just making full time and formal something that is just informally the case, but generally not noticed, which is even if my kids go away to boarding school, I'm still their primary educator. I'm just conveying uh, a certain amount of distance when I do that. That is not the case with homeschooling or, you know, a day school situation. So starting homeschooling really just has to do with an attitudinal change. It really has to do with what you think you can do, what you think is worth doing, what you think is worth sacrificing for. It doesn't have to do with the acquisition of certain credentials or a certain sense that you know everything that you're going to do and that's going to go on and and how everything is going to work. Um, as somebody who teaches in a formal educational setting and has taught in other ones before this, um, even people that are formally credentialed and authorized and paid to be educators, we don't always know what we're doing, you know, from one class period to the next. So don't worry about the fact that you don't know that in your homeschool right away. That's really not the point. The point in homeschooling is not so much that you are able to like outshine 
you know, everyone in a formal school setting right away or at the end of the first year or something. The point is that you are making formal and full-time what was informally the case, whatever happened before you started homeschooling, which is you are your children's primary educator. That's, that's the way God has set up the creation. There would be homeschools if there were no, you know, credentialed institutions or credentialed instructors inside of those institutions, there would still be homeschooling in the sense that there would still be parents to whom God has given children to teach and to grow in wisdom. So that, I hope, helps you kind of intuit what I would like to say just briefly about parochial school. And I don't want to be relentlessly prescriptive about it because I don't have the practical kind of experience with parochial schooling. Strictly speaking, that is a school tied to a parochia, a parish, that others do. Okay, But I can say, as somebody who knows something about theology and something about education, that if you're going to bother with having a parochial school and then bother with sending your children to a parochial school, you want to make sure that that school is doing what it's really sole reason for being is, right? Because if you think about the three estates, or as I've been describing them um, in different places this summer, as the three fortresses that God has set up for the protection of man, the family, the church, and let's say government generally, a parochial school, like lots of educational institutions, um, colleges, seminaries, they can be really helpful or they can be detrimental, but they're not necessary in the same sense that the family, local churches, and the existence of government are necessary, that is, divinely appointed. So things like parochial schools or other similar institutions at other levels can come and go according to need. They don't have to be there, right? They don't have to. If they are, it could be wonderful, but they don't have to be there. So you should not look in a parochial school simply for pressure, to send your child to that parochial school. You should look for it to be delivering the substance of what it exists to do, which is to educate Christian children to be wise Christians, right? Wise Christians. So they could be Christians without a school or even any formal schooling, right? They could hear and believe the gospel without acquiring literacy or numeracy or any other of the functions of, you know, formal educational instruction. They could be Christians. We want them to be wise Christians. So I want a parochial school that is attending, first of all, and in the way that it functions and in the way that it hires and in the reasons for which it fires. I want a school which is functioning according to the norm of Christian doctrine as that is contained in Holy Scripture and confessed in the Lutheran Confessions. And that sounds really basic, but I think it's precisely when that reality is presumed to exist, but not ensured to exist, that you get into a lot of trouble with parochial schools, because they continue to function as institutions without people making absolutely sure that they are institutions normed and regulated and practicing in accord with Christian doctrine, which is simply Lutheranism, right? Which is the religion of the Bible uh, confessed explicitly in the creeds and confessions of the Book of Concord. So that's the absolute fundamental thing. In addition to that, so speaking, let's say ideally, in addition to that, because for me, that's utterly practical. And if that's not there, I really don't care what it calls itself or what it says it's doing. It needs to function according to Christian doctrine, according to Lutheran doctrine, according to the Bible. In addition to that, and ideally, that is, these would be my preferences, I would look for a school that has little to no technology. My kids can figure out how to, you know, use a smartphone on their own. I don't need iPads in the classroom. I want kids to be outside a lot. I want kids to be physically healthy, have plenty of time to run around. Um, I want kids to be able to read and to write physically well and beautifully, um, partly because one of the best ways to write well is actually to write with one's hand on a piece of paper. So preferentially, not absolutely, but preferentially, I would want um, a degree of engagement with nature, um, a degree of uh, 
freedom from the slavery to technology we have at every level. And that <laughs> that's probably going to mean in the school also preferentially, um, but this is a big preference on my part, freedom from entanglement with the government. Because it seems that in states and in places where government funding is heavily tied up in private schooling, especially parochial schooling, the parochial school inevitably becomes something that really is tied to the money, which is tied to the government and its preferences and its desires, rather than tied to the church and its Bible and its doctrine and and what it wants, right? So it's always going to be financially difficult to run a school to a greater or lesser degree. That's a constant in the history of parochial schooling in America. But um, if that sacrifice is going to be made by the teachers, by the church, or churches getting together, and by the parents and the children, then it needs to be made for a school which is teaching Christian doctrine, uh, cultivating sound minds as well as sound bodies, and conveying to Christian children the wisdom of previous ages, both pagan and Christian, uh, in the kind of synthesis that is classically present uh, throughout the history of Christian education, which is uh, plundering the wisdom of the Egyptians, as Basil, uh, Basil the Great put it, plundering the wisdom of the Egyptians um, so that we can uh, magnify Christ and uh, express ourselves with wisdom and eloquence. So I'm looking for a parochial school if I'm looking for one. I'm looking for a parochial school that's going to keep and deepen uh, in my child the Lutheran faith in which I, the primary educator, am educating him. And then in addition to that is going to give him a sound body by giving him plenty of exercise and a sense of how to be healthy, how to move well, um, and a sound mind, um, a tongue that can express itself well, the capacity to get along with other people. Um, so discipline is, is paramount. So those are the things I'm looking for. And historically, um, I think a lot of those things were honestly conveyed and a lot of our parochial schools. So I don't see it as an impossible pipe dream. I think we just have to be creative about how we start schools, especially, but also how when schools change, how they can change for the better. Um, if those things aren't present, especially the sense of a thorough um, imbuing of the school and its teachers, especially with Lutheran doctrine, then you don't need to look for a parochial school, look for something else. Um, you are the primary educator, you are the father, you are the mother. Look for something else that's going to make your little Lutheran child better at being a little Lutheran. Um, you, don't, you don't have to be uh, you know, enslaved to something just because it has a certain label on the building. So that has to do with parochial school, but it also has to do with something that is probably uh, the biggest question that we got for today's episode. And that is the question of institutional drift. It's something easily observable in lots of institutions. Um, Catholic schools have this problem. Um, Lutherans have this problem. Everybody has this problem where institutions are founded by a group for some purpose or other, and then they just sort of wander away from that purpose. Sometimes it gets really explicit, right? So what was Lutheran Brotherhood and Aid Association for Lutherans is now Thrivent Financial, which is a Fortune 500, but it's not specifically for Lutherans. I think there was an intermediate stage where they were Thrivent Financial for Lutherans. You can still, you know, get, uh, you know, money for congregational projects from Thrivent, but it's not for Lutherans anymore. That's one example. Um, another example would be um, Concordia College in Edmonton, Alberta, is founded as part of what would, if it were part of it, what is now the Concordia University system to train pastors and teachers uh, for Lutheran churches, especially in Canada, the Canadian West in that case, and it's secularized now right? So it's, it's not even a Christian university, but it's still a university. So let's talk, first of all, about why that happens, and then potentially about how to make sure that it does not happen, right? Because there are examples where that has not happened. Why does it happen? It happens because institutions are created for purposes, but those purposes are 
probably not the thing that sustains those institutions. So in the case of an institution founded to train people in business management, like Harvard Business School, it can have a really nice feedback loop where alumni are able to give it significant amounts of cash and businesses can give it significant amounts of cash to keep going. So the institution can stay on track with its original purpose, although it's going to gain others over the years as it continues to exist. But that's an example where what it produces, business managers are able to pour back into it really directly and financially, which is something institutions are always worried about because their reality is primarily financial and uh, with their personnel, keeping them, keeping their, you know, buildings open, things like that. With church institutions, we have the problem that very often church institutions cannot be supported solely by the people who have graduated from them. And that financial reality has to do with something that um, I think we are often inattentive to in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, which is when someone is relatively pious, we often tell him immediately, you should be a pastor or you should be a teacher or something like that. And I certainly am not going to say and do not tell my own children, you know, not to be pastors or teachers, not to be involved in the church in a professional way. Um, I have prayed that all my sons would become pastors, right? That they would devote themselves full time um, with the financial sacrifices attendant upon that to the proclamation of the gospel. I tell them it's a wonderful thing, right? On the other hand, the church does not consist of the clergy or even of quasi-clerical uh, groups such as commissioned ministers in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. The church consists of uh, pastors or preachers and hearers, um, if you look at the table of duties in the small catechism. That doesn't mean that just because you're not preaching full-time that you are somehow not in the service of the gospel or that your life and your vocations are not in the service of the gospel, just as are the persons who is giving himself full time to the proclamation of the gospel. And when we tell people who could be really great at business or, or law or fixing cars or, you know, being HVAC repairmen, that because they show up to church every week and seem to know and care about Christian doctrine, that they should be pastors. I think we cut ourselves off at the legs because we make it difficult for people who really care about the gospel and who would support church institutions, who would support things like Luther classical college. Um, because we, we put them in professions um, that we've encouraged them to be in because they're pious and good and intelligent we put them in professions where they're really not financially all that able to support those institutions and certainly to keep them going. That causes institutions, and Catholics have the same problem we do in this case, maybe worse, um, that causes institutions to look elsewhere for support and funding. So they will metastasize in order to attain government funding, in order to get grants, in order to get matching grants, um, and they'll do that because they cannot be supported in a strictly Second Corinthians 8 and 9 way of simply free giving gifts, right? Apart from any kind of recompense, apart from strings attached, right? Just gifts in the way that Paul is asking there the Corinthians and also knows that the Macedonians too will be supporting his collection for Jerusalem. That is the ideal way, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, for the church to be supported and for church institutions, whatever they are. They don't have to be local congregations. They could be the sanatorium that we ran for tubercular patients outside Denver um, back in the day, uh, Wheat Ridge, which survives, I think, as sort of a, a fund. Um, they could be anything. They could be seminaries, colleges, whatever. They should be supported simply by gifts, right? Gifts can be recognized. Things can be named after people. I, that's totally fine. Um, but they should be gifts. And if we don't have people that are capable of giving, right? Notice that, I mean, Paul can't just self-fund the collection for Jerusalem, even though he does support himself when it's necessary for the gospel. If we don't have folks who are excelling in other vocations than being pastors, then we're cutting ourselves off at the knees. I think that's a really big part of it. 
there's also, in addition to that, not just that sort of, let's say, physical or material or financial drift that seems to come up, um, especially in church institutions, because they cannot be supported by their graduates in the way that a business school or a law school might. There's also ideological drift, and that is connected, if you look especially at the history of Lutheran colleges and also the the vagaries of our seminaries, actually both of them to lesser degree with Springfield, but both our seminaries in the 1950s, 60s, and early 70s. And that ideological drift usually comes about, especially in academics, from a sense of lacking prestige. So bitter jokes were made by, you know, the first generation of men to have been raised speaking English and getting degrees from places like the University of Chicago and then being asked to teach at, you know, Concordia Seminary St. Louis, that they, that they were teaching at Concordia Bible College. Um, that's a dynamic that exists, I think, in, in immigrant groups like the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. It also exists in groups that are small and especially in men that grow up in those groups, realize that they grew up in a distinctive, kind of unusual, maybe somewhat backward uh, social milieu. And they're sort of ashamed of it, and they don't like it. And so they want to change it, right? And they want to change it for reasons that maybe on an explicit level have to do with a change in doctrine, but on an implicit level also have to do with their own discomfort or their own ambition, right? So Yaroslav Pelikan taught at Concordia Seminary St. Louis for, I think, an academic year, and then moved on to, you know, um, much more prestigious institutions in the Northeast as soon as he possibly could. Um, similarly, um, Gerhard Ferdy and Robert Jensen, who are uh, theologians in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America in the 70s, 80s, 90s, um, both uh, have, now, have now passed away. Um, but when they were young men, uh, they're both of Norwegian-American descent, and uh, they were both appointed to the religion department at Luther College, which was historically uh, the Norwegian uh, group or institution closest to the Missouri Synod and theology, um, at least for a while. And uh, so it's, it's, it's fairly conservative um, when they get there, and they begin to teach what we would just call higher criticism, right, as just sort of a fact um, with their degrees. I think um, uh, Ferdy was, had a degree from Harvard and, and Jensen had gone to Heidelberg. And uh, they begin to teach that, you know, the Bible, you know, let's, let's say in summary, the Bible contains the word of God. The Bible is not, strictly speaking, in all its parts and, and assertions, the word of God, right? So this is scandalous in the American Lutheran Church of their time. It's scandalous at Luther College, uh, but they get away with it. <laughs> and they therefore change Luther College, which at the time is, I think is still requiring everybody to take these, you know, Bible and doctrine classes. They change Luther College forever. They both move on. Uh, Jensen goes elsewhere. Um, Ferdy ends up at what is now called Luther Seminary um, in the Twin Cities. But uh, they change it. And they change it, I think, because of a sort of anxiety or a sense of superiority. And so that that drift, right, that drift, that ideological drift, I think really results from a certain amount of uh, simultaneous insecurity on the part of someone who believes that he's not really being fulfilled where he is, okay? And so he wants to change where he is to be, you know, more anti-racist or uh, less Bible-thumping or whatever pejorative he has acquired elsewhere. So there's, there's an insecurity combined with a superiority that he has adopted toward his own people, right? The people that sit in the pews or um, a phrase that I, I would like to be uh, a little more popular, the people who keep the lights on, right? Uh, the guys who ride combines and uh, drive work trucks and, uh, you know, go to work every single day and go to church on Sunday and they keep the lights on and they are the reason, whatever their vocations are, they are the reason that churches exist, uh, because they support and they pray and, uh, they are there, uh, sort of pastor in and pastor out in the congregation. Um, and without people like that, we don't have churches, right? However many, you know, academics or, um, you know, clergymen uh, we might we might think are talented or whatever. We don't have churches without the people who keep the lights on. 
And that's why I think that in especially a polity like that of the Missouri Synod, whether you're talking about things beyond the local church or things in the local church, the way to control for institutional drift is to yoke the institution to the confession, okay, requiring confessional subscription and confessional practice of however many levels necessary for the institution. So in the case of a sanatorium, I don't need all the patients to be Lutherans, right? Um, but I need the chaplain to be a Lutheran. I need the board of directors to be Lutheran. In the case of a college, probably the safest thing for a Lutheran college is to have everybody be a Lutheran, um, if possible, even the guy who cuts the grass. But obviously the faculty should be Lutheran. Obviously the board should be Lutheran. Obviously the president should be Lutheran. Um, and it's probably best for the students to have as many Lutherans among the students, if not all the students, as possible. And the reason for that is that that gives you a sense of living life, not only on Sunday, um, but also, whether you're an academic or the guy who cuts the grass, Monday through Saturday, that you live your life in Christ. And for a lot of people, that is simplest and clearest when it is normal, Right. And so the observation I'm making here about containing institutional drift is both about how you set up the institution so that it is actually controlled by its confession rather than its need for money or enrollment or whatever. But that in addition to that, it seems to be most normal for human groups that when you want someone to think that something is natural and obvious and good, you make it as normal and normative for him as possible so that the people that he meets are Lutheran, uh, or the people that he meets also know, you know, who Aristotle was, or whatever it is that you want to make normal and normative, that you help people by making those normal and normative things group things, rather than matters of sheer individual conviction, in which case, many fewer people will hold on to them when it seems optional, whether you need to think this or not. And one way um, that higher criticism was normalized in other church bodies and in our own, at least for a time, was that people just agreed to act like this was a given. <laughs> you know, we don't really need to discuss it. It just is the case uh, that higher criticism is right about the Bible. So when you act like things are normal, let's say you act like biblical gender roles are normal, right? You act like the gospel is, you know, worthwhile proclaiming to your neighbor, then you're going to actually wind up with lots of people believing and acting like those two things are the case. Just as you would if you chose their satanic opposites, you're going to wind up with people believing and acting uh, like what you say is normal is normal. Um, and Pastor Fist talks a lot about that, um, especially on Saturday Morning Chill, um, that you need to live in a way that actually takes God's word as true, and you will find it proven true, uh, unlike the the false words proclaimed uh, by other sources. So if you want to contain institutional drift, I think that especially in the case of um, academics or executives in those institutions, if we're talking about education or, you know, executives, um, you know, lifelong um, servants or functionaries in those institutions, you need them also to identify with the people whom the institution serves and by whom the institution is supported. I think when they feel superior to or cut off from the people whom the institution serves, students, patients, whatever it is, uh, parishioners, and or cut off from the people who support the institution, right? The people who keep the lights on. That's when you're going to inevitably have drift because the people who are on the ground in the, in the institution, whether it's the teachers or, or whoever it might be, they don't feel connected to any of that. And so they're not going to seek to, you know, inculcate it or further it. Um, they might take the money of the people who keep the lights on, but they will not do what the people who keep the lights on think is normal or natural or right, right? And that's a story that you see played out over and over and over again. But I think you see, especially in the case of um, the Seminex controversy in the Missouri Synod, where uh, what was being said and done at the seminary, especially in St. Louis, but there were, there were some faculty as well at Concordia Springfield at the time um, saying similar things, but especially at St. Louis would have been shocking to the people in the pews in, you know, uh, Nebraska, 
Um, and I think that the people causing the institution to drift knew that, and that's why they were somewhat secretive about what they were saying and doing, um, except when they were on campus and, and in, let's say, safe spaces, right? Um, because institutional drift is sort of embarrassing for everybody. And so you want to have open lines of communication and very clear um, understandings on all sides by all parties of what this place is for, uh, what it's doing, um, how the people leading it are accountable in the way that we do, I think, much better and more often for parish pastors than we do for other positions within the church or within our society. Um, because when someone understands that he's there to serve and what their conditions are under which he serves, that is that in the case of a parish pastor, he proclaims the truth of the Bible um, and leads a godly life according to it, um, it's simpler, clearer, and uh, better for everybody long-term when there's clarity and, and a spirit of humility and service rather than uh, the high-handedness that I think precedes institutional drift. Let me finish up um, by talking about where we're going to go and, and how we're going to get there because when we talk about forms of collapse, and uh, <laughs> I was just talking about a couple projects that people had that really did collapse, like the attempt to make the Missouri Synod a mainline Protestant denomination with attendant theological insanity. When you talk about collapsed projects or collapsed regimes, you're talking about something that was at one time someone's shining dream, right? Seemed uh, obvious and good, uh, seemed like the right thing to do. Um, it is amazing when you read enough biographies, but but especially autobiographies, even if they are ghost-written, to see how often people uh, thought themselves or their ideas or their projects invincible and then live just long enough to see them collapse or crumble. And uh, very few people are given the gift of uh, sufficient perception to know why that happened. Many people are simply bewildered by their own failures and collapses and uh, unfortunately do not learn from them. What we're going to be looking at are a bunch of different cases. So we'll probably take it case by case um, per episode. So we're not going to, you know, jump all over the place looking at financial collapse or regime collapse. We'll do one thing at a time, similar to how we drew some parallels between Latin America and the United States of America um, several episodes back. And we'll do that in, in this way, that we'll take the historical circumstances of what's happening. And the reason that I do that is because there's a certain limitation in uh, things like 1984 or Animal Farm, that they are someone's um, conception uh, with a, a degree of clarity that reality doesn't possess of how things are or how things will go under certain conditions. And it doesn't mean that Animal Farm or 1984 are, you know, totally off base and can't tell you anything about the nature of totalitarianism or the nature of propaganda. Of course not. But in the case of propaganda, for example, I find much more valuable the book by Edward Bernays, who is the man that made propaganda mean what it does today. <laughs> Edward Bernays uh, wrote a book, Propaganda, and I find it much more valuable because he actually practiced it. And so I want to, the reason that we'll use history as a basis for our understanding is because history gives me a sense not of what I thought might happen or wanted to happen or found literarily convincing and so wrote down and now you believe it feels like it did happen, right? Which is so powerfully the case when you see something uh, on film uh, in a way even more powerful than print. But I want to use history because then I know that, okay, when the Soviet Union, as we talked about a while ago, when the Soviet Union had these relatively senile dictators and they were trying to prosecute a war in Afghanistan, how did that go? Okay, because that's not going to give me a direct parallel. It's not like the same story now playing out in the United States, but it has a lot of parallels. And the discontinuities, such as the Soviet military, was not nearly so enslaved to political requirements and political commissars, even though they openly had them, openly, 
as is the current U.S. military, then what will happen with the American regime as we have relatively senile, um, maybe completely mentally gone leadership on many levels, not just the highest, and a military that is much more, uh, you know, owing obeisances to political directives, sheerly political directives apart from any military rationale for why they're doing this or why they're recruiting for this or why they're trying to do this or that. So we'll, we'll, we'll run from history into what might happen. And we'll do this with things like uh, the end of the Soviet Union, but also with things like uh, market bubbles, um, with things like um, collapses in settlement or demographics in different places and times. And we'll do this at least as long as we talked about education. Um, and as we do this, what I would love is for you to share the episode that you are most interested in with someone that you think would actually listen to that episode. There's a lot of information in every episode. Um, some of you guys <laughs> listen multiple times to each episode, which I think is great. Um, and I, I try to read widely and well so that there's plenty in there so that if you do listen two or three times, there's plenty to take in the second and the third time. Um, so don't, you know, just load the entire podcast onto somebody and say, hey, start at episode one, go find out about the Electoral Count Act, you know, don't worry about all that, but give them somewhere to jump in, hopefully. Um, because I want from talking about collapse to begin to talk about lots of other things. I mean, I, Hollywood, history of Hollywood would just be sort of fun to do. But I'd like to talk about a lot of other things that I hope are future looking and um, hope and just hopeful by nature. And that's because the time that is coming, I see as fundamentally positive. I think it is incredibly positive that people are looking in very uh, sharp ways, not only at what they're being told and what they're being told to do, but also at what they themselves are doing with their lives, what their priorities are, whether their lives should be measured by material successes, what is actually worthwhile building a life around. Those are questions that I think human beings perennially ask. They're questions that I think Americans are currently much more urgently asking as the givens of modern American life slip away one by one by one by one. So when I go throughout the country and see shelves in all kinds of stores fairly bare, not enough staffing anywhere for anyone, for anything, it's not like those things are in themselves good failures. They are themselves forms of collapse. But what is good is what that could do to someone's soul when his soul begins to consider a different life than the one that was just sort of put in front of him, like feed in front of a you know farm animal on an industrialized farm. Now he's beginning to think for himself, to forage for himself, to wander around for himself, both in his spirit and also maybe <laughs> maybe physically as I've been doing. But that wandering and that finding for yourself and that doing for yourself is wonderful. And if we do nothing else on this podcast, I hope that we have helped you not only to know something about the 1980s and the Soviet Union or the 1940s in Argentina, but I hope that we have helped you to know something more about your own life, something insightful and helpful for your own life, for your own people, uh, for your own family and your church that will be long-term uh, helpful for whatever you're facing. Because in a time like our own, we are facing the unveiling of many, many strange things, and in many ways, many, many dark things, uh, things that were presumed not to exist or not to be uh, possible, because how could human beings be so negligent or ignorant or evil? That's just how evil they actually are. In this time of unveiling, the thing for you to think about is how you will live a life that is God-pleasing, how you will go forward, how you will build, uh, what you will look forward to when uh, you wake up tomorrow morning. And those are things that I hope are 
helpful and hopeful, not things that are merely about, okay, here's one more story about things failing. So we're going to use stories about things and people and institutions and lots of things failing in order to understand how, at least in this or that part of our life, not in every part, but this or that part, how not to fail, how to build better or well. So I'm not totally opposed to the phrase build back better. (laughs) Not at all. Um, I'm opposed to resets. I'm opposed to arrogant people at Davos, but I'm not opposed to build back better. I just have a very different conception of that than many people. <laughs> and I think you share that, that different conception with me and, and with Pastor Fisk. So um, that's what we're looking forward to. And uh, from here, we'll be going into some of the, the vagaries of uh, COVID regimes uh, and wondering why they are as uh, odd as they are and uh, what that indicates for uh, what some have called uh, our regime's soft managerialism, uh, the arrogance of the person who doesn't know how to do the job himself, but wants to tell you how to do it, how to have a life, even though he himself does not, and when you may see your family, even though he's estranged from his own. So that's where we'll be going next. Uh, If you have further questions about education or really about anything, get on the Brief History of Power Discord, um, or you can, you know, find me directly uh, via any of your favorite internet search engines. We'll talk to you again soon.